Good morning. My name is Garrison, and I am one of the pastors here at Veritas Dayton. Uh, we are so glad that you are here this morning. Uh, if you would open your Bibles with me, we're going to be looking at Matthew 5, particularly at verse 3. Matthew 5, verse 3. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Matthew is a gospel. That means it is uh, sort of theological biography about uh, Jesus Christ, his uh, birth, his life, his teaching, his miracles, his betrayal, death, burial, resurrection, his ascension and sending of the church into the world. That's what the Gospel of Matthew is. And there are five sermons, five discourses in Matthew. And the first of these is the Sermon on the Mount. It's a Sermon on the Mount. And the, uh, Matthew kind of has these five discourses that Matthew moves in and out of in the gospel according to Matthew. Uh, these teachings, these sermons, these discourses from Jesus. And then at the very end, he sends the church into the world to all nations to teach everything that Jesus commanded the church, his disciples. Uh, and so this is uh, indeed what Jesus had in mind, what Matthew had in mind when he was recording Jesus' words here. These are the teachings of Jesus we, which we are to teach the world. These are the teachings that the disciples are to teach people so that they would be disciples. Um, and so that's what we're looking at. We are looking at the first of these five sermons, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, if, if Jesus ever had a messianic manifesto, this would be it. This is the first of the five sermons and perhaps the one that sort of captures most clearly uh, who Jesus is and what he came to do. Uh, so we're going to look at uh, the, the first um, beatitude, and we're going to talk about what that is a little more. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, the very first phrase of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there are white and blue paperback Bibles in the back. Uh, you can get up and go grab one of those, or you can look on your phone or, or do whatever you wish uh, to, to look at the text this morning. If you don't have a Bible, those Bibles in the back are uh, for you to use this morning, but not only that, to take home if you so wish. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, please take one of those home. That's our gift to you. Uh, you also received when you walked in this morning uh, what's called a connect card that was slipped into your bulletin that you received when you walked in this morning. Uh, if you take a few moments, fill that out. That's a good way for us to get to know you, get to know a little bit about you, and uh, potentially uh, try to get together with you, grab coffee, grab lunch, uh, uh, what, you know, what, whatever, to, to get you connected with what God is doing here in our church family. So please take a moment to fill that out. There's also a space for prayer requests on those. We'd love to be able to pray for you this week. Please take a moment, jot a few things down so that we can be in prayer for you this week. All right, we're going to dig into Matthew 5, 3. If you want to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, uh, we're actually going to read 1 through 10, uh, but we are going to particularly look at verse 3. So listen to God's word with reverence and joy this morning. Seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we are in desperate need of you this morning. We are utterly nothing before you. But we also know that in Christ, you have given us an honor above all honors. You have called us your children. You have given us the inheritance of your kingdom. And so we call on you as beggars, but also as sons. And we ask for help. Would you open our eyes? Would you open our ears? Would you soften our hearts so that we can receive from you this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. So Thomas Barnardo, there he is, he's not typically someone mentioned as a hero in church history. Uh, Who's heard of Thomas Barnardo? Anyone? All right. All right. Cool. Thomas Barnardo, that's good. Uh, Well, he was an Irish man. Uh, He grew up in Ireland. He lived from the mid-1800s to the early 1900s. And when he came of age, he moved to London uh, to be trained, to receive training uh, in order to be sent to China as a medical missionary. Uh, evidently, he felt in some sense God's call on his life to uh, serve as a means of mercy to those suffering from the brokenness of this world. However, he never made it to China. Uh, when he was in London, uh, he started to teach at, uh, what was called a, a ragged school. Uh, which was a school for poor children, orphan children, children that lived on the streets in the city of London. And, and what he saw there changed his life. Um, eventually, because of what he saw there, he, he came to the decision not to move to China as a medical missionary. He dropped out of his medical training, and instead he decided to stay in London to help the large population of homeless and orphan children there. And then eventually, he started to open homes for these young boys and girls without parents and who were living on the street as a result. And then he opened up another home, and then he opened up another home, and then he opened up another and another and another. And then he started what could be uh, maybe compared to like the seed form of foster care. He started uh, trying to place these children and families to, uh, for them to take care of these children. And all in all, uh, at the end of his life, Barnardo housed and fed and cared for uh, 8,000, over 8,500 children in the city of London. Uh, and he opened over 95 homes uh, wherein they housed and fed and cared for these children. And there's an interesting thing. Barnardo had one condition for a child to be received into one of these homes. It, It wasn't that the children had to have some sort of benefactor who would pay their way. 
It wasn't that their parents had to have left them some form of an inheritance to pay for their stay in in these homes. Uh, Neither was it that these children had to possess some sort of virtue or talent that showed that they had uh, promise. Um, You know, he didn't distinguish between the deserving poor and the undeserving poor like so many did in the Victorian era. No, it wasn't any of that. Uh, The one condition that had to be met for a child to be received into one of these homes was that they had to be utterly destitute. They had to be utterly, they had to be without hope of survival and thriving apart from their being received into one of these homes. And now that's a kind of picture, it's a kind of picture of what we see in the first beatitude here. Jesus begins his messianic manifesto with a declaration that the poor in spirit, those who know their moral destitution, those who are spiritually bankrupt and without hope apart from God's grace, those who, who, who have been driven down to be dust from life, they are the ones who are flourishing and happy and to be congratulated because he has come to give them the kingdom of God. He has come to give them the kingdom of God. He has come to make them children and heirs of the great high king. That's what we see in this first beatitude. So let's dig into the verse. We're going to discover some of the riches that God has for us here. First, let's explore what it means when Jesus says blessed. What what does it mean when Jesus says that the poor in spirit are blessed because theirs is the kingdom of heaven? Well, Jesus begins, he begins saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, So, we saw last week that this word uh, translated as blessed here is the word, the Greek word, makarios, okay? And we kind of dug into what the word makarios meant, uh, you know, and we, we saw that it can also be translated as happy are the poor in spirit, or fortunate are the poor in spirit, or congratulations to the poor in spirit. We, we saw Jonathan Pennington, he translates uh, this word as flourishing are the poor in spirit, Uh, And again, it's not that blessed is a bad translation. Uh, The the problem is what comes to mind for us when we see that word blessed. Uh, We we tend to see this, when we see that word blessed, we tend to see this as a blessing, as a benediction. Um, However, beatitude is not the same thing as a blessing. A blessing or a benediction, as they're often called, is a pronouncement over someone to bring about a specific good. Okay, if, if, if this beatitude, if the beatitude were a blessing, Jesus would say something like, to those who are poor in spirit, may you be blessed with possessing the kingdom of heaven. But that's not what he does. Uh, he doesn't bless them. Rather, he describes those who are poor in spirit as living in a state of blessedness, of happiness, of flourishing because of what they possess, i.e. the kingdom of heaven. So understand the difference. A beatitude is not a pronouncement over someone to bring about a specific good. A beatitude is a congratulatory description of someone in a perceived state of well-being that invites us into their certain way of life. Okay, a beatitude is a congratulatory description of someone in a state of well-being that invites us into their certain way of life. It's a congratulatory description. You know, last week, uh, we illustrated this with the current common saying, uh, she's living her best life. She's living her best life. It's a modern beatitude. 
It's a congratulatory description of someone in a perceived state of well-being that invites us into their certain way of life. So we look at Beyonce, Queen B, right? We look at Beyonce, and she's rich, uh, she's famous, she does work that she loves and is meaningful to her, she's a mother to beautiful children, she's got a famous and talented husband, she has beautiful clothes, and, and so on and so forth. And so people look at Beyonce, and they say, she's living her best life. She's living her best life. It's a way of saying that someone is flourishing. They're living the good life. But there's also a longing and an invitation there too, isn't there? It's, it's an invitation to their certain way of life. In saying Beyonce is living her best life, people are saying, if you want to live your best life, you also need to do work that you love and have beautiful clothes and have lots of money and, and have a, a beautiful family and all those sorts of other things that makes the good life the good life. That's what a beatitude is. Jesus is saying, as it were, the poor in spirit are living their best life because the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. So notice, too, that a beatitude is not a command, okay? Uh, so many here have treated beatitudes like their command, like it's this tit-for-tat kind of thing. Like, if I'm poor in spirit, Jesus will bless me, uh, and, and therefore I must be poor in spirit. Uh, no, it's not a command. Uh, if it were a command, Jesus would say, be poor in spirit, because if you are, I will bless you and give you the kingdom of heaven. That's not what he says. Rather, he describes those who are poor in spirit as living in a state of blessedness, a state of happiness, a state of flourishing, because the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. And in so doing, he invites us into their way of life, into this way of life referred to as poor in spirit. You see, it's not a blessing, it's a congratulatory description, and it's not a command, it's an invitation to the good life. It's an invitation to the flourishing life. That's what the Beatitudes are. Now, part of what's so amazing about Jesus' Beatitudes is that they describe people that the world would hardly call blessed or happy or flourishing. They describe people that the world would hardly say they're living their best life. Jesus says that those who mourn are living their best life. <laughs> those who hunger and thirst for justice, for righteousness, they're living their best life. Those who are meek, who are making peace, those who are persecuted are living their best life. You see, Jesus is, he's, he's taking our vision of the good life and he's flipping it on its head. He's saying that the best life, the happy life, the flourishing life, the good life, what it means to be blessed isn't a life that consists of an abundance of possessions or comfort, or ease of life, or a lot of money, or physical beauty, or having a picture-perfect family, or any of the rest of it, the flourishing and best life, according to Jesus, is a life of knowing and owning your own spiritual bankruptcy. Because it's in that way of life that you come to possess the riches of the kingdom of God. Which brings us to our next point. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Now, this is an incredibly important question, obviously, because it's the poor in spirit who possess the kingdom of heaven, right? Uh, so, here's a, a really important thing we need to understand about the Beatitudes. Like, they're descriptions of ordinary Christians. They're just descriptions of Jesus' disciples, 
Uh, they, they, like, it's not as if he's describing a special class of Christians. You know, the medieval church understood the Sermon on the Mount in that way for a long time. Like, it was a special spiritual class. It was for priests, for monks, for nuns. But Christian laity, you know, they can't be expected to, to live the Sermon on the Mount. That's not what Jesus is doing here, though. He's describing God's people. He's describing disciples of Jesus. He's describing those who possess the kingdom of, who, who are the ones who possess the kingdom of heaven? Christians. So each and every single Christian possesses the kingdom of God. So we need to understand what it means to be poor in spirit because evidently that's what Jesus' disciples are. They are poor in spirit. Now it doesn't mean to be poor spirited, right? Poor spirited meaning, uh, meaning like being just a generally melancholy and glum person, being this Eeyore kind of figure. Uh, some of us might tend to be a, a little more like that. That's not a bad thing. It's part of our personality. It's fine. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Rather, by poor in spirit, Jesus is talking about the spiritually lowly, the spiritually humbled. He's, he's talking about those who are acutely aware of their own spiritual bankruptcy and their dire need for God's grace and kindness. Now, Jesus actually once told a parable, a parable to illustrate this very concept. It's in Luke 18, 9 through 14, and it's the parable of what's called the Pharisee and the tax collector. That's what we call it. So there are these two men. There's a Pharisee, uber-righteous dude, and then there's a tax collector. Everyone hates tax collectors, right? I mean, like, especially in those days, because they were seen as, like, betraying the Jewish community, um, so they, the, the Pharisee and the tax collector, one day they're both in the temple praying. And the Pharisee, he proudly prays. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, uh, I'm not, that I'm not like extortioners, that I'm not unjust, I'm not like an adulterer, even like this disgusting tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give all the tithes I get, or uh, I, I give all the tithes of, of all that I get, but then Jesus says, the tax collector, he's standing far off, and he wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus concludes the parable, saying, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's a picture of being poor in spirit in contrast to its opposite, being proud in spirit. Coming to God as if one has all the resources that they need to be accepted by Him. Coming to Him boasting of your own resume and virtue and piety. Coming to God as if he should be obligated to give you the kingdom of God. Coming to God as if he would be privileged to make you an heir of his kingdom. So arrogant. God hates that. But he loves to lavish the riches of his kindness on the humble and contrite and poor in spirit. To dig in a bit deeper, though, let's consider some of the characteristics of what it means to be poor in spirit. First, you know, we, we need to know, this, it's like radical. It's a radical thing that Jesus is talking about here. Uh, the word translated as, as poor here is, is, is about the radically poor. Like it's not the kind of poor that lives paycheck to paycheck. 
It's not the the working class poor. It's a word that describes the utterly destitute, the utterly destitute. You know, sometimes this word is translated as, as beggarly. Uh, there's, there's this uh, commentator, Charles Quarles, he describes this word. Uh, this word is actually supposed to give an image, a picture to us. It's a word uh, that described the posture of a beggar as he held out his cup and pled for coins from a passerby. Another, as another commentator puts it, it describes someone who stands without pretense before God, stripped of all self-sufficiency, self-security, and self-righteousness. Those who are poor in spirit here recognize that there's nothing within them that obligates God to show them favor and kindness. As, as Martin Lloyd-Jones said in his commentary, being poor in spirit is recognizing your utter nothingness before God. It's recognizing that you are spiritually and morally bankrupt, utterly destitute. The, the hymn writer Augustus Toplady summed it up well, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to thy fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. It's, it's desperate. It's radical, being poor in spirit. Next notice, it's, it's also spiritual. Jesus plainly says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So he's not merely talking about the materially poor here. Okay, he's talking about a spiritual state of being in the world. It's fascinating in my preparation to see the amount of commentators and theologians that believe Jesus is merely talking about the materially poor here. That simply can't be the case because being materially poor does not automatically grant someone salvation and inherit the inheritance of God's kingdom. If it did, then we actually shouldn't seek to relieve poverty because that's a prerequisite for someone being accepted into the kingdom of God then. Therefore, he can't merely be talking about the materially poor here. He's talking about the spiritually poor, the spiritually impoverished. Uh, all of his disciples who come to him in lowliness and humility, all those who come to him with broken and contrite hearts, as David says in Psalm 51, are not turned away, but they're welcomed as sons and heirs and possessors of the kingdom of God. However, it was equally as fascinating to see in my preparation the large amount of commentators and theologians who strongly asserted that this beatitude has nothing at all to do with the materially poor. That's also an error since Jesus continually makes a connection between being materially rich as a barrier to receiving the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus said himself in Matthew 19, 23, he said, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why is that? Well, it's because the wealthy tend to, materially speaking, have everything that they need and want at their fingertips. And that can be an intoxicating and dangerous thing. (coughs) It's spiritually dangerous to be materially wealthy. It's spiritually dangerous. It can dupe you into thinking that the good life consists of having an abundance of money 
and possessions. It can dupe you into thinking that, that, that you are self-sufficient. Like, it's not a coincidence that one of the richest people in the United States, who just so happens to be our president, wrote in his book, How to Get Rich, that's the title, he said, show me someone without an ego and I'll show you a loser. And see, when you live that kind of life, it can be difficult not to approach Christianity in the same way. It can be difficult. It can be difficult not to approach Christianity in the same way. It's likely that you will struggle more so with thinking that you have everything you need in yourself to make yourself worthy of God's kingdom. When you draw near to the gate of the kingdom of God, you might be more likely to shout out your own resume rather than fall to your knees in humility and repentance. That's why Jesus rebuked the Laodicean church in Revelation 3.17. And he said, for you say that I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing you are wretched and pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. It's dangerous. It's spiritually dangerous to be materially rich. The materially poor, on the other hand, since they know their material needs, since they've been subject to humiliation and degradation and poverty in life, they tend to be more in touch with their spiritual need as well. They might be more likely to fall to their knees in humility and repentance when they draw near to the gate of God's kingdom because they know what it means, what it looks like, what it feels like to be entirely dependent upon the grace and kindness of others to meet their needs. And now this is a serious thing, you know, that we understand this because as Westerners, as Americans, you know, we, many of us live very comfortable lives not knowing what it means to want for money and material goods. And it's not that there's something inherently sinful about that. I'm not saying that. But at the same time, we can so easily be intoxicated by it. We can so easily be duped into thinking of ourselves as self-sufficient, deserving of God's kingdom. We can so often approach Jesus rather than with broken and lowly and contrite hearts, with proud hearts and with lips that list off our accomplishments. Know that whether you're materially, materially rich or materially poor, you are morally and spiritually bankrupt before God. You are destitute of worthiness before him. Know that your only hope, your only hope before God is Christ. Which brings us to the next characteristic of being poor in spirit. It looks to Jesus. It looks to Jesus. There are two senses in which this is true. The first sense in which this is true is that it looks to Jesus by the standard, as the standard by which we judge ourselves. So remember about the par- remember the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee says, "Lord, you know, thank you." I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even this tax collector over here. See how he's comparing himself to others to assert his own worthiness before God. This is a classic move for the self-righteous and self-sufficient and proud in spirit. Yeah, you know, maybe I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not like that person. When we operate in this kind of manner, we we grab anything we can to assert our own self-righteousness. If we're Republican, well, you know, at least we're not like those Democrats. If we're Democrats, well, you know, at least we're not like those Republicans. 
If we're homeschoolers, well, at least we're not like those public school families. If we're public school families, well, at least we're not like those homeschoolers. Or, or sometimes we grab onto our theological convictions and biblical knowledge as proof of our own righteousness. Sometimes we grab onto our, our good works, our serving the church, serving the neighborhood, serving at a nonprofit, and we hold it before God and before others on social media as proof that we are worthy of God's kingdom. But that's not what the poor in spirit do. The poor in spirit look at Jesus and they see in him the perfect embodiment of what we were calling last week the the whole person righteousness described in the Sermon on the Mount. They look at Jesus and they see one who perfectly loved God and loved others. They look at Jesus and they see the one true and only righteous man to ever walk the face of this earth. They look to Jesus and see that in comparison to him, they are spiritually destitute before God. And they say, as the apostle Peter said to Jesus when he saw him in Luke 5, 8, he said, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Poor in spirit also looked to Jesus in another sense. Poor in spirit looked to Jesus for grace. Poor in spirit looked to Jesus for salvation. The poor in spirit looked to Jesus for the riches of God's kingdom. They come naked but look to Jesus for dress. They come helpless but look to Jesus for grace. They come foul but look to Jesus for washing and cleansing. And if one looks to Jesus, then they become possessors of God's kingdom. Which brings us to our last point. What does it mean to possess the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says that the poor in spirit are blessed, they're happy, they're living their best life, they're flourishing because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, some have tried to say that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are two different things. That's not what's going on here. Matthew's gospel, it's written to the Jewish community, many of whom in that day during Second Temple Judaism uh, began uh, trying to avoid saying God as a means of revering the holiness of God. And as a result, it became very, pro- uh, very uh, common practice to call the kingdom of God the kingdom of heaven in those days. So the kingdom of heaven is another way of saying the kingdom of God. So what is the kingdom of heaven? What's the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is exactly what it sounds like. You know, a a kingdom is a king's domain, a king's dominion. It's a king's people in a king's place under a king's rule. So likewise, the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule in and through Jesus Christ. So God's people are the church, right? God's place is the entirety of creation. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's all of heaven and earth, all of creation. That's God's place. And God's rule is his will and salvation being done in us. Now, in, in, in saying that the kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit, Jesus is saying two things. First, he's saying that the kingdom of God has come and is coming in and through him. Okay, you've got to understand the people to whom Jesus was talking here. Like, you've got to understand something about Second Temple Judaism. Second Temple Judaism is the people of Israel between the rebuilding of the Second Temple and its destruction in 70 AD. 
And they were a people who were deeply longing for the coming of God's kingdom. And they were growing increasingly cynical and broken over its perceived absence. Okay, so, so they are people who have been feeling the absence and void of God's kingdom in their midst for the last several hundred years. They were looking to God's promises to Abraham. They were looking to God's promises to David. And they, they, they looked at God's promises to Abraham that God was going to give Israel a son that would bring about a time of global blessing that would reach all nations of the earth. They were looking to God's promises to David that one of David's sons would sit on the throne of the kingdom of God and reign forever and ever, and that it would be a, a kingdom wherein there was shalom and peace and flourishing and happiness that would increase and never end. They were looking at these promises, these promises of God, these, these promises that God gave to his people, and they were looking around them and they were not seeing what they longed for for a long time. They were oppressed and enslaved by the Roman Empire. They looked at who was ruling over them, and it wasn't the promised Messiah. It was Caesar with his oppressive regime. It wasn't God's promised Messiah. It wasn't Abraham and David's offspring. It was Caesar with his oppressive regime. And so they were growing increasingly cynical, increasingly frustrated and heated, and they were longing and hungering and desperate for the coming of the Messiah because he would usher in the kingdom of God. And here this guy, Jesus, comes along, and he starts saying that the kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit. He's claiming that the kingdom of God is here. It's finally here, and it's his to give away. He's claiming that the kingdom of God has come and is coming in him, and that he is the one through whom God is establishing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. He's claiming that he is Abraham's and David's offspring. He's saying that he is the one who has come to bring God's kingdom of universal and everlasting shalom and salvation. Jesus has come to realize God's people in God's place under God's rule. Now, you might look around and go, so God's kingdom of universal shalom and salvation has come in Jesus. Are you kidding me? I know. Like, all you have to do is look around our city, drive around our city, watch the news, and you know there is so much brokenness. There's so much that, that could hardly be described as flourishing in universal shalom. And so we have to understand the kingdom of God is coming into stages. The kingdom of God is, is, is often what we call, it's already and it's not yet. It's coming in two stages. The kingdom of God has come in Christ, but it's not yet been fully realized. It's been inaugurated, but not fully realized. There's a present fulfillment, which we enjoy as the church, and a future fulfillment, which we still wait for with longing and anticipation. The new creation has broken into our present evil age in Christ and his life and his death and his resurrection and his sending of the Holy Spirit. Now God's people are filled with the first fruits of life in the age to come when Christ returns. And because of that, God's church is continuing to grow and multiply and fill the earth, We're continuing to spread and populate the globe as the people of the kingdom of God. And, and we even serve as a current preview and picture of God's kingdom 
when it's a, a, a preview of what it's going to be when, when Christ returns and it's fully realized here on earth. And the way that we uh, are, serve as a preview of that is by living out the Sermon on the Mount here, by living out the teachings and, and way of Jesus as his disciples. But what we wait for, what we're waiting for, is also unimaginably better than what we experience now, as good as it is. What we're waiting for is heaven and earth to become one. What we're waiting for is a world wherein there's no death, no sin, no tears, no sickness, no failing bodies, no hunger, no death, no addiction, no injustice or hate. It's a world wherein we will be fully and truly who we were made to be as God's image bearers. A world where, where our bodies won't break or age or fail. A world where, where, wherein, as Tolkien tells us via Samwise Gamgee, where, where everything sad will become untrue. Rather, everything happy and good and beautiful will become true forever for us. Where we will thrive and flourish and live abundantly forever and ever. We will experience what we experience in measure now, but fully then through the presence of God's people and God's Spirit. The second thing that Jesus is saying is that the poor in spirit are heirs of God's kingdom. Notice here that Jesus is saying that the poor in spirit are happy and flourishing because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Like they possess, it's, it belongs to them. They are owners in the kingdom of heaven. Like, you know, kingdoms, they typically have two classes. There's the ruled and the rulers. You know, like kingdoms, there's, there's royalty and there's subjects. There's, there's ones who are paupers and ruled over, and there's royalty, the, the, the princes and princesses. And so when Jesus says that the poor, and ha- the poor in spirit are happy and flourishing because the kingdom of heaven is theirs, he's saying that they are part of the royal class of the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, there are no paupers, only princess, princes and princesses. In the kingdom of God, we're not merely subjects, but we're sons. In the kingdom of God, there are no orphans. There are only heirs. That means that every right that Jesus has as the son of God and the conquering and righteous king, he shares with us. Literally, Jesus, the kingdom of heaven belongs to him, and he's the one who shares it with us and all the benefits of his kingdom. He shares the benefits of God's kingdom with the poor and lowly disciples. He is the Son of God, and if you are in Him, you are a child of God. He is the the, the one who has received the resurrection of the body, and when He returns, you will receive the same if you're in Him. He will reign forever on a renewed and glorified earth, and you will reign with Him if you are in Him. And the reason that that is the case It's because, as the apostle puts it in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. You know, he left the pleasures and riches and praises and perfection of heaven, and he came down to be made into a poor and lowly and humiliated servant so that you could have the pleasures and perfections and riches of heaven on earth. He suffered on the cross, making himself nothing before God, even though he was the one true and righteous and spiritually worthy man, so that we would be considered righteous and worthy before God. 
He became a spiritual orphan on the cross, despised and rejected by men and forsaken by God so that we might be welcomed in as the children of God and heirs of his eternal kingdom. That's why the poor in spirit are flourishing. That is why the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Because Christ, though he flourished, came to be broken and poor and humiliated humiliated so that we might flourish with him. Though the kingdom of heaven belonged to him, he came to suffer and die that he might share it with us. And now because of who he is and what he's done, you're invited. You're invited into true happiness and true human flourishing. You are invited to receive and possess and be an heir of God's eternal kingdom, to possess God's kingdom forever as long as it isn't too far beneath you. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you have given us everything in Christ. Would you help us to be humble and contrite and lowly before you? In Jesus' name, amen.